We're going to continue our study in Ecclesiastes today, in Ecclesiastes chapter 6. So you can go ahead and be turning there. If you don't have a Bible with you, let me encourage you to grab one in, in front of you, um, in front of the chair in front of you, and it's actually on page 556. So 556, we are going to start in Ecclesiastes chapter 6, verse 10. I don't know about you, um, but I enjoy this time of the year, not just for the beautiful weather that we get to take part in today with highs up in the low 70s and sun, um, but I also love a little March Madness. Um, I don't know if anybody in here likes some basketball, likes, well, we see some hands here. Um, I know Tanner does, you know Tanner, Coach Turley, um, but I, growing up, I always enjoyed watching Mar March Madness, even though my Clemson Tigers were rarely in March Madness. Um, I, I did grow up in Durham, North Carolina, so Duke, Carolina, everybody around me that I knew, um, it was big. I mean, this is right, you can imagine, growing up in Durham, North Carolina, Duke University, I mean, this was, this was life. This was basically gospel and good news for everyone down there. Now, I don't know if you saw any of the games this past weekend, but there's been some madness going on, specifically on Friday. So on Friday night, um, for those of you that don't, don't know, they ranked the seeds 1 through 16. And, and the one, the, the closer you are to 1, the, the better supposedly the teams are, um, the better the seed. The 16 seed is like your... Um, you know, your cupcake that shouldn't make it very far. But on Friday night, a number 15 seed beat a number two seed, and it happened twice in the same night within hours of each other. So Duke University, I grew up going to their basketball camp with Coach K, um, went down to a 15 seed, and then Missouri went down to a 15 seed as well. Craziness, madness. I don't know if that made you think of Ecclesiastes at all. As we think of absurdity, vanity. I mean, you've got to be thinking, what is going on? You've got a two seed. How many had Duke going to the, to the, at least the Elite Eight maybe? I see there, you got, got, they blew your bracket up a little bit. Um, but as we look at Ecclesiastes and as we look at life, we see there are a lot of things that, are, that, that is absurd, that's meaningless, that's vanity, that is not the way it's supposed to be. Not only that, what I love about March Madness is the fact that you're never really out of a game. Um, I mean, you, you can be out of a game, but the madness of March is, I mean, a 15 or 20 point lead, you see comebacks happen in, in the tournament that you would say, no, this isn't going to happen, but it happens. And so you even see teams facing adversity, trials. How are you going to respond? I mean, that's the same way all of us in life. We're, we don't choose the, the cards that are dealt to us, but we all face all kinds of adversities, all different kinds of trials. I don't even know what's going on maybe in your life today. But as we look at Ecclesiastes chapter 6, we're going to see the preacher continue to look at his world in light of the absurdity, the meaningless that he sees, and then the adversity, trials, and he's trying to make sense of life and how he shall live. And so as we, we come to chapter 6, verse 10, we're actually in the very middle part of the book. Um, this, is, this is the middle section um, that was by the Masoretes that they would, they would have, in the Masoretic text, they would have marked that This was the middle section of Ecclesiastes. So some of you right now are like, I'm glad. It's downhill from here. You know, if you're getting tired of Ecclesiastes, there's good news. We're, we're on the way out. 
Um, but hopefully that's not the case. Um, and so as we come to the middle point here, we're going to see a, a, a shift in the focus. We're going to see the preacher shift from his explicit search for meaning to focus on advice and commentary for the future. And we're going to see that really explicitly laid out in our text today. So I'm going to start in verse 10. Let me encourage you to follow along in the Bibles you have there. Ecclesiastes 6 verse 10. Whatever has come to be has already been named. And it is known what man is and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity, and what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? What we see here in these few verses lays out the groundwork for where we're headed today. And we're, we see a number of questions that are raised along with a few statements. And so the first truth that I want us to see today is that we need to embrace these hard realities about life. And there are two specific realities that I want to highlight in verses 10 through 12. And the first one is this. You are not sovereign, God is. We see this from the very beginning here in verse 10. And in the statement, what has come to be has already been named. This idea of naming may take you all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. Um, Genesis chapter 2, God created man and, he, and woman, and he gave them responsibility and authority over the earth, and even to name the animals. So you may reflect back in Genesis chapter 2 of Adam in the garden, and the animals are coming by two by two, and he's naming the animals. God has given this responsibility to Adam. We look at who we are. We look at the situation we are in life. God is sovereign. He is the one that created this world, and he is the one that gave authority to Adam and Eve, and he is the one that determined what this world is going to be about. He is sovereign, and we are not. I, I even reflect here the words that I hear in Isaiah that Paul quotes in Romans. He says, does, does the clay say to the potter, why have you made me? Do we respond that way to God? It's, it's this thought that, hey, we're just the clay. We're not the potter. We don't craft. We just fall along. We just, we just obey. God is the one who forms it. He is the one that gives authority and who gives purpose. But you can probably reflect with me. You know anybody that really sought to have a dispute with God? That really took up this issue and wanted to engage God on life and the meaning of life? What about a guy named Job? Job, his lot in life, he had everything. And it was taken from him. And so as we read through chapter after chapter of Job and his dialogue with God. Do you know what conclusion Job comes to at the very end? I think I've given us a portion of that up here. Um, if not, I'll, I'll just read through here. He says this. He says, Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. After this long dispute, he's engaging God. God says, hey, look, you sit down. I'm going to question you. And Job responds, says, okay, I hear you, God. I'm sorry. 
What knowledge do I have? Nothing. I repent in dust and ashes. It's the same way. This is what the preacher here is getting back. Look at the text here with me. He says, And he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity. What advantage is to man? The one stronger is God. Who, we're not one to dispute, to argue with God. And then he says, more words, more vanity. And even if you were to attempt to do it, it would just be more words, more meaningless, more vanity. So what should we acknowledge? God is sovereign. We can't dispute that. We can't argue that. You know what's easier for us to do, though? It's easier for us to dialogue with God on how we think things should be than really to accept how things are. And this is what the preacher's getting at. Hey, you don't determine your lot in, in life. God is sovereign. There, there's no use in, in arguing and disputing with God. We must embrace this reality. So let me just give you an encouragement. Wisdom for life begins with understanding who you are and who God is and not getting those two mixed up. There's wisdom there. We've got, to, we've got to know that God is sovereign and we are not. He determines meaning in life. The second reality that we see in these first few verses that really lays the pathway is not only is God sovereign, but life is short and meaningless. Look at, look at verse 12 here. For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life which he passes like a shadow. Do you hear the continual theme that we've already seen in Ecclesiastes, this life is short, this life is vanity, and it's like a shadow. It's here, and then it's gone. This is life. Is anybody really just frustrated now with the start of the sermon? <laughs> God is sovereign, there's nothing I can do about it, and life is short, and it's in vain. It's vanity. I mean, this could really lead us to despair. I mean, where do we go from here? Is anybody in despair today? I mean, even as you look at life, I don't know the lot in life that you've been given. Maybe you're in a situation similar to Job and you're saying, God, why? You really want to take up and you want to dispute with God. You want to have a conversation with God and you want to, you want to, you want to question the sovereign God and what's going on in your life. Or maybe even asking, where is God if he's even there? Is anybody in despair today? So if we combine all this together, the problem with life is not just it's not that God's sovereign. It's, it's short and it's meaningless. And you can't do anything about that. Can you determine how long the lot in life you're given? Now, there are some things that, that, that are in our hands that, I mean, you could really shorten your life really quickly today if you wanted to. But for the most part, as we go about life, we realize that a lot of it is out of my hands. It's out of my control and I can do nothing about it. So how do we respond how do we respond to this? This leads the preacher to two questions that's going to launch us into the rest of our sermon today. In verse 12, who knows what is good for man? This is the first question. Is there anything good to live for? Is there anything good that I can do? If this, is, if this life is short and it's meaningless and it's vanity, is there any good for me to do? And then the second question he asks is at the end, of verse 12, for who can tell man what will be after him? Who can tell me what the future will be? What the future holds? Because here's the deal, if God is sovereign and you don't know the future, can anybody tell me what's going on in the future? 
Now, the primary question that he seeks to answer is the first one as we look in chapter 7. We're going to see, he's seeking to answer, man, what is it good? What good is it for you to do? How can you live wisely good in this world? And he's going he's gonna to say that there are some things that are better to do than others. And so this lays, the, this lays out where we're headed. And now we're going to look at really some Proverbs. So chapter 7, 1 through 14, it's basically a series of Proverbs. We're going to look at it's seven truths that we're going to draw and say, what are some Proverbs that we can, we can grasp and get some wisdom for how we should go about doing life in a way that would make much of God. So the second truth, moving on to chapter 7, that I, that I really want us to think through is this, is that we should receive these words of wisdom, these seven words that I'm going to lay out. So look at, look at chapter 7, verse 1, and I'm going to read through this for us. Chapter 7, verse 1. A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is, the house of, is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the songs of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools, this also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the bosom of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, and advantage those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. In the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find any, out anything that will be after him. So just a few observations on the layout here, and then we're going to jump in at these Proverbs. Did you hear the better than language? The better than language is playing off of, he's trying to describe what is good. So what is good in life? Well, it's better to do this than to do that. So you see better than. We're going to see that throughout the Proverbs here. The second thing that you probably notice is that there's some irony in the text here. The day of death is, the, is better than the day of birth. The day of sorrow is better than laughter. Is that how you would have put it? Death is better than birth and sorrow is better than laughter. I mean, I enjoy to laugh, I enjoy to smile. I mean, this picture here, we're going to see that there's even irony laid all throughout the text. And not only that, what we're going to see here is even though that there are some things that are better than others, we're going to see that the preacher here is even frustrated with wisdom that it doesn't provide ultimate meaning in life. So I want you to keep those in your back pocket as we continue to walk through the text here. Now, where did he get these topics from? It suggested that maybe he got it from Ecclesiastes 3. We actually sang a song earlier today. So it says, there is a time to laugh and a time to cry, a time to be born and a time to die. They all, the For Your Glory song. You go back to Ecclesiastes 3, and it's going through a list that we see many of these issues 
come up right here. That possibly he's given a commentary on these times and what it looks like to live and honor God in that. So the first one I want us to look at is this. First part of wisdom that I want to share with you. Pursue a reputation that makes much of God's name. Now look at, look at verse 1, chapter 7. A good name is better than precious ointment. Um, a precious ointment would have been a costly luxury in ancient Israel. Let's ask this question. Why would a good reputation be better than that? Well, what could happen to your ointment? You could spend a bunch of money on it, and then it could be stolen. It could spoil. It could be spilled, and it could be wasted just like that. On the other hand, a reputation is something that will stay with you, even to death. What's he getting at? What's the Proverbs? You, sh you shouldn't sacrifice your reputation for the pursuit of wealth or things. Now, this meaning is maximized as we even look further there in verse 1. The day of death is better than the day of birth. And here's where you're going to see the irony. Reputation is better than this this ointment, but you know what happens to your reputation when you die? You're soon going to be forgotten. I mean, sorry to break the news to you. I um, mean, you're going to have a tombstone over your grave and it's probably going to say something about you and, and your life is going to mean something, but generations down, you know, for the most part, you're going to be forgotten. Nobody's going to know about you. So even, even though a good reputation is something to pursue, what do we see here in the irony is that ultimately it's, it's going to fade away too. So let's keep that in perspective. But I want to ask you this. Man, whose reputation really should we be pursuing? Should we be pursuing a reputation to make much of us? Should really, my, my goal in pursuit in life would be that, oh yeah, man, that John guy, he's a great guy. Could there even be some dangers here in the pursuit of our reputation? I would say yes. And let me challenge you with this. Ultimately, our desire to pursue a good reputation shouldn't be to make much of us. It should be to make much of God. And that why should I be concerned about my reputation is because I want people to see when they see G John Chastain, what they know about John Chastain is that this is a guy who is genuine, he's authentic. Man, that guy is a follower of Jesus. That I want my reputation to point to God because that is who I am. That is my identity. I am a new creation. I'm in Christ. You hear the in Christ language all throughout scriptures that those who have come to follow Christ, that is who they are. So if we're to pursue a reputation, man, let it be not about us. That would be prideful. That would be arrogant. Let it be much about God. And you know what? This shouldn't surprise us. Man, I've got some great verses I want us to think through here. Look at the screen here. I'm going to flip through some of these. Psalm 29. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Look at the next one here. Psalm 72. May his name endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him. All nations call him blessed. Look at this one. 
In the path of your judgments, O Lord, we wait for you. Your name and remembrance are the desire of our soul. Is this your desire? That, that God's name, that his fame, that his remembrance would be your pursuit, your desire. And then look at Colossians 3.17. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Let me ask you, whose name are you after? Whose name are you living to make much of? Are you, are, are you living in such a way that people will know who you are or that people would know this great God who has changed your life? There's some wisdom for today. Second piece of wisdom I want to I point you to is that there should be some life lessons that we learn from death. Learn life lessons from death. It's, it's not too hard to see the irony of the second part of verse 1. The day of death is better than the day of birth. Now, I want you to get this. I'm actually preaching this text on the day that in a mo few moments here, we're going to have a parent-child dedication. And I'm teaching you that the day of death is better than the day of birth. Well, that's what the text says. What is going on here? How is the day of death better than the day of birth? Or maybe I'll put it a different way. How many of you would rather go to a funeral or to a party for a newborn? Funeral, party for a newborn. Yeah? I mean, if I had my choice, I'm going to the newborn, right? No, this is the irony. We wouldn't choose this. So what's, what's the preacher getting at? You know, we could look forward to the New Testament. In the New Testament, we see like Paul saying, it's far better to depart and be with Christ than to stay here. Paul's saying to live is Christ and to die is gain. It'd be better for me just to die because I'll be with Christ. But that's not the implication of the text here. What is going on? Well, let's keep reading because the good news is when you've got a question in Scripture, usually... It's going to be answered as you continue to read. So look at verse 2. He says, It's better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting. So the house of mourning, let's equate that with death. Because if there's a funeral, you've probably been to a funeral and you've been to the house where there was mourning taking place. So he's connecting the house of mourning with death. And then the house of feasting would be with birth, with the revival of a new baby. And there's a party, feasting, celebration going on. He says, it's better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. What's his reason? His reason is this. When you go to a funeral, what truth is being spoken to every single person there? That will be me one day. You see that? That is, that is the message of a funeral. It, it, there is no way to escape it. You're there, you go to a funeral, the body's there, and you're saying, this is me. None of us will escape this reality. Some may face it sooner than others, but eventually we will all face it. And so the preacher here, in light of the vanity of life, the meaningless of life, he's saying it's better the day of birth, death then the day of birth is because it makes us to contemplate what is life really all about? Because you know, in the day of birth, you're not really thinking about 
eternal things. You're thinking, this is newborn. This, th- this has a long life to go. So death, while painful, is a more effective prod to spiritual growth and wisdom and maturity than the elation one feels over a newborn child. It teaches us more than the day of birth. So let me think it, get you to think about this. Do you try to avoid this morbid topic of death? Because what we see here in the text is not just somebody who's thinking about death, but is almost consumed with it. Verse 3, sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. He's just saying, you want to be wise? Go to the house of mourning. Contemplate death. And do you even hear the irony of verse 3? Sorrow is better than laughter. By sadness of face, the heart is made glad. How do you get a heart made glad? Well, you start with sorrow. Where we would usually think you start with laughter and then laughter would soon give away to sadness. He says you actually start with sadness and sorrow and that that would produce joy in the heart. Why? Well, as we contemplate death, maybe we could say with the psalmist in 90 verse 12, Teach us to number our days. That in the contemplation of death, we really think about the big questions in life. And even living becomes clearer to us and how we should live. Now the preacher here doesn't tell us about Jesus. He doesn't tell us the ultimate answer as we look forward to death. But we do know it's on his radar. We do know he has some concept of a day of judgment, even though he doesn't have the solution. So should we just end in despair here? I mean, if we were just to sit around and contemplate death today for a few hours, and you did that, apart from the hope of the gospel, you would walk away in despair. And let me say this, if you're in here contemplating death, even some of you right now, maybe that even brings up fear. I mean, okay, what happens after death? What will I experience? What will this be like? For some of you, maybe that's fear. So let me not leave you hanging there. This is why we have the whole Word of God. So when we come to the New Testament, as Tanner read earlier in John chapter 5, we see Jesus saying that whoever hears my Word and believes, he will have eternal life. Jesus says, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. I mean, what is, the, what is one of the main messages of Jesus? It is, there is life. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. I am the way, the truth, and The life, it is a message of hope to many that are in despair. So let me not leave you in despair today. If you're here today and you're at the brink of despair and as you contemplate death, let me also turn your eyes to Jesus who was saying, there is hope. Run to me. 
cling to me, believe. I came and lived a perfect life. He, he did not deserve to die. You see, death is the result of sin. We could just even step back here. God is the one who created this world. He created Adam and Eve to know him, to love him, to obey him. And they chose sin, disobedience. The result was death. But Jesus comes and he lives a perfect life so that you might have life. And you don't deserve this. It is grace. And so let's make sure we get something straight here because even as I'm laying out these Proverbs, I'm not giving you a to-do list for eternal life because you can pursue a, a great reputation and you can here pursue to think about death and you can, as we're going to look in a second, you can take the rebuke from a wise man and you can think about money and wisdom. But if you do not know Jesus, Life to you will still be vanity. There is great hope in the gospel. Trust him. Turn to him today. Let's move on. We've contemplated death. Now I want us to go to verses 5 and 6. When we come to verses 5 and 6, we see some great wisdom here that we should love the rebuke of the wise. Love the rebuke of the wise. Verse 5, it is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. We hate rebuke but love songs. If I were to give you the option here, who in here today wants a rebuke or who in here wants to jam out to some songs on their iPod and go run around for a couple miles today. Now, maybe some of you don't want the running part. Maybe you'll take the song part. But I guarantee you, most of us do not love rebuke. But this is what the, the text doesn't say love rebuke. I've taken and added a little bit stronger because I believe that, that we need this prod here. That we shouldn't just listen and be open to rebuke. We should love it. We should seek it. We should embrace it. What we see here is the switch from the death theme to the wisdom and folly theme. You see this wisdom language come up here. You see the wise man and the fool man. And, and then he continues on in verse 6. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of fools, this also is vanity. You think about starting a, a fire with kindling. And it blows up fast, but it doesn't last very long. You think of thorns, it, getting a fire started, it's going to have a lot of crackling and popping, but it doesn't last. It doesn't have any, 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 any continuance to it. He's, in, he's comparing that to those who love the songs of the fool. Now, I want to share a few more Proverbs with us that hopefully this will clarify a little bit. Proverbs 1. Because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord, would have none of my counsel and despise all my reproof. This is wisdom talking. Therefore, they shall eat the fruit of their way and have their fill of their own desires, devices. For the simple are killed by their turning away, and the complacency of fools destroys them out. But whoever listens to me will dwell secure and will it be at ease without of dread of disaster? Look at this next one here. 
Proverbs 15, 31. The ear that listens to life-giving reproof will dwell among the wise. Proverbs 17, 10. A rebuke goes deeper into a man of understanding than a hundred blows into a fool. What's your first response when somebody rebukes you? Let's be honest. I hate rebuke, right? Does anybody love rebuke? Man, I don't like it. I don't like it any more than you like it. My first response is, let me give you an excuse. I'm just being honest. I'm thinking of excuses. And I want to put the blame on somebody and something else besides me. I would rather be commended than corrected, praised than rebuked. I would rather judge and rebuke than somebody else do it to me. Why do we, why do we hate it? I want you to think about this. We defend what we deem valuable. Why do we hate rebuke? What do we value? We value ourselves. I want you to just think about the self-idolatry that's usually wrapped up in the hatred of rebuke here. I love myself. I love who I am. And don't threaten that. But you know what a mark of the wise is? Being teachable, able, and willing to receive correction. Now, I want to help you out here because there are some implications from the gospel that help us with this. You know how the gospel really frees me up to love rebuke? Well, I want you to listen to this statement here. No one can criticize me more than the cross has. No one can criticize me more than the cross has. What does the cross do? My sin is exposed. And not just some of it, all of it. The, the, the cross reveals that I'm a sinner and I'm not, I'm, I'm a bad sinner. I'm, I'm such a sinner that it sent the spitting in Jesus' face and the mocking him and the torture, the, the crown of thorns on his head the spear in the side, the nails in the hand for hours in the agony. The cross criticizes my sin, but it also frees me from my sin. Here's what will help you love rebuke. To love rebuke, you must agree with God's criticism of you on the cross that you are a sinner. But not only that, you have been justified. You have been forgiven. Why should I defend myself? The cross, the gospel should allow me to say, you know what, you're right. I am a sinner and I blow it often. You know what, I probably was wrong. The gospel gives me hope in the midst of rebuke so that I can can accept rebuke because I know that I've got a great God who has forgiven me radically. But I want you to notice this. Why have you been forgiven? The cross hasn't forgiven me because of my works. You see, this is why we we don't like rebuke, because it shows where we've blown it. But when you truly understand the gospel, that God doesn't accept you because of 
how good you are, he accepts you in spite of that. That it frees you up to really embrace rebuke. So do you love rebuke? Let me share an illustration with you. In college, I was a sophomore, beginning of my sophomore year in college. Um, I was in a discipling relationship with a guy in Campus Crusade for Christ. And we'd been meeting one-on-one every week, really challenging me to grow in my faith. Um, And I got rebuked by this man. I was a young college student. Man, really just, I desired to grow in the gospel, but I had some areas that, that I was just blindsided by. And you know what the reality, the reason we need rebuke is because oftentimes our sin, we don't see it. I don't see it. I'm blinded by it. You ever been driving your car and just, man, you didn't see the car there? I mean, a lot of times it's just, it's a blindside. Everybody else, if you were the car behind, you're like, there's a car there, don't come over. You know, everybody's bleeping the horn, but you don't see it. It's in your blinds. The sin does that with us too. It deceives us. And in many cases, we're blind. And so I, I had a guy come along and he was straight with me. He called me out on sin in my life. And you know what my first response was? I didn't like it. But 14 years later, I love it. I want to go back to this guy and say, thank you. Let me tell you about rebuke. Rebuke in the middle of it doesn't feel fun, but it produces a fruit, a long-lasting fruit of godliness if you will love it, if you will embrace it. But you know what it takes to really love rebuke? It takes humility. It takes a teachableness. And it really takes inviting and making yourself accountable to somebody. Let me ask you this. Do you have somebody in your life that has the the free reign to come and rebuke you? I think everybody needs somebody like that. This is something that we try to foster in our community groups and our discipling relationships in, in Redemption Hill. And notice the heart here because I'm going to share this in a second. How do you actually go about to rebuke somebody? Because it says here that we should love the rebuke of the wise. Well, what if you're wise? How should you actually go about in rebuking someone else? Let me give you just a few principles here. First one is this, that you should see your sister, brother in Christ as one for whom Christ has died. Secondly, you should come as an equal sinner. When you go to rebuke somebody, you don't come as a holier than there. You come there humbly saying, you know what? Let me just be honest with you. I've blown it multiple times and I'm a sinner just like you are. You come as an equal. Third encouragement here. Prepare your heart lest you speak out of wrong motives. You've got to watch yourself. Are you coming with the right motives? Fourth, examine your own life and confess your sin first. Lest you've taken the speck out of your brother's eye and missed the huge log that was going on in yourself. The next one, be patient and stay in it for the long haul. This guy that came and rebuked me, he had a relationship with me. It wasn't just a one-time conversation that he came. There was a love, there was mutual trust. And you know what? And he, he probably knew that I hated his guts after he rebuked me, but he stuck in it for the long haul. And this is a guy that I could call today and say, thank you, I love you, man. This isn't something you just share and peace out. Seek not to condemn by debating points, but rather to build up 
through constructive criticism. And then last one, correct and rebuke gently in the hope that God will grant your brother or sister the grace of repentance, even as you yourself only have repented through his grace. So maybe there are some encouragements here. Maybe you're actually a, a person of wisdom that God's laying on your heart that man, you need to go encourage, prod, rebuke a brother or sister in Christ because they've got a blind spot. And you know what? Is that loving? Yes. If you're driving down the road and you see a wreck about to happen and you don't lay on your horn and say, don't come over. And you just say, is that love? No, the love would be do what it takes to avoid the wreck. And that's what you're doing with your brother and sister in Christ. You're trying to stop the train wreck before this blows up into something big later on and can't be stopped. So maybe you're to be that person, but maybe you're also the person on the other end that needs rebuke. Or maybe you've been rebuked and you haven't responded in, in a gospel-motivated way. Here's some principles for you. Let's continue on. Fourth thing I want to share with you. Not only should we love rebuke, that we should beware the wise are not immune for corruption. Look at verse 7. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness and a bribe corrupts the heart. I'm not going to spend a ton of time here, but here's what I want you to see. And here's the irony. The wise are not even immune from corruption. What does it say there? It's talking about extortion. It's talking about a bribe. You involve money and it can even mess with the wise. And this is what he's just making you aware. Hey, by the way, we're, he's just challenged us to love the rebuke from a wise person, but he's now saying, but hey, be cautious because a wise person could have abused power. It can happen. Let's be aware of this. Where do you see this most often in a local church? Bribery does take place in a local church. Let's say you've got somebody that's one of the biggest givers in the church. There's the temptation, what? Well, by their money, that they can control the direction of the church. I'm not saying this has happened. I'm just saying, hey, let's think about this. This even happens in a church, that people use money to distort wisdom and even people in power. Let's be aware of that. So beware, the wise are not immune from this kind of corruption. Verses 8 and 9, pursue patience, not anger. Better is the end of a thing than the beginning. Would that have been your thought? Maybe not, but this is going consistent. Better is the end than the beginning because death is the end, birth is the beginning. This is a consistent theme that we see rolling through the text here. And then he says, patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. If you're going to make it to the end of the thing, you better have some patience. The pride is the one at the beginning that knows it all. That's why Tanner and I and our leadership have tried to pursue in humility even in the beginning of planning a church. You can have a lot of great wisdom and thoughts and dreams, but we want to have humility there to see that it is better in the end. Our desire would be to see Redemption Hill 100, 200 years from now if the Lord has not returned. So let's keep that in mind. That's just in a local context here. So let's love, patience, pursue that and not anger. Number six, I know I'm, I'm flying here. I want to make sure we get through this. Verse 10. Say not why were the former days better than these. Have you ever said, man, just wish I had the good old days? Now I'm going to share something funny with you. On my key ring here, 
I've got an IBC cream soda top. You can go and laugh at me, Tanner. Now, this is a, a new one that I made with some guys, but when I graduated college, man, we used to sit around with our six packs of IBC cream soda and talk about the glory days. You can ask my wife about this sometime. We actually, she made me get rid of that one that I had of the glory days when I was single um, that I made with these guys that we reflected on. Hey, this was to remind us of the glory days. Now we're all married and we did one of our married glory days. Um, but I want you to just think about that. Do you ever just reflect, man, the good old days when we would, the, the preacher's reminding us here, let's not fool ourselves. Because in thinking of the good old days, you totally miss a ton of other factors that were going on. I mean, we want to think about what life was like before we had any responsibility, right? And if I just go back and not have any responsibility, but you know what? When you were there, you actually look forward. You're like, man, I can't wait till I get there. And the preacher should remind us that there's nothing new under the sun. So in the reality is, Let's, let's be cautious in our use and dissatisfaction of the present for looking at the past. And then going on down to verse 11. Wisdom with, is good with an inheritance. That we should choose wisdom over riches. I'm just going to make a few points here. Wisdom is good with an inheritance. If you've got an inheritance but you don't have wisdom, you'll be the fool that squanders the inheritance like that. And not only that, we can see that how do you get an inheritance? It takes wisdom. So if you have an inheritance, that's because somebody before you was wise in their dealings and their money and their resources and their land. So this is one thing he's highlighting. Man, if you have an inheritance, wisdom goes great with that, to be a good steward and to be a good honor to God with that. But then he continues on and he compares money and the per protection of money and the protection of wisdom. How does money protect you? Well, it protects you in the trials of life. Let's just think about it. If you've got an inheritance or money and the trials of life come, it provides a buffer there. Let's say you lose a job, but you've got a savings build up, an emergency fund build up. That is wisdom there. You lose a job, you've got an emergency fund, that's going to protect you until you can get another job. Um, money... If there were a famine, if there were, you name it, per, money provides a certain level of protection. But get me straight on this. Tanner just preached on last week, and we need to make sure we don't forget this. Wealth will never, never satisfy you. But he, what he's highlighting here is that wisdom works in a similar way. That just, just as money protects you, we see here in verse 12, the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money, and the advantage of knowledge is that Wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. So does wisdom, is that it protects us in life, but it does not ultimately protect us. Can wisdom provide eternal life? And what he's even looking at here, he's not even looking big picture eternal life. He's just saying, hey, if you'll follow these wisdom principles, you'll probably live a lot longer than somebody else. And we see that through the scriptures, even the Old Testament, that a lot of following God's wisdom is that you receive blessing. Now let me wrap up. Verses 13 and 14 will be done. He concludes here and he says, Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the end, we should trust God's plan and provision. 
He says, consider what God has done. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? Be attentive to the world. The reality is, is you can't change the world, but you can see how God is working in the world and you can trust his sovereign plan. Now let me conclude with this. In many cases, we look at the world and we see it is crooked. It is broken. Let me let you in on something. God is at work in this world to straighten out that which is crooked. And he does that through Jesus Christ. Not only on a, on a personal salvation level that you can have the hope of eternal life, but one day Jesus is going to come back and he is going to make this world new. There's going to be a new heaven and a new earth and everything is going to be made right. God is at work renewing, restoring what was lost in the beginning. And so as the writer of Ecclesiastes, as, as he's writing here, he doesn't know that, but now we know the end of the story of what God is doing. And so we can trust him. So I don't know what adversity that you're facing in life, what's going on in your life, but this is my plea, my challenge to you today, that we should move forward in wisdom, trusting that God is sovereignly at work and that in Christ, we don't have to end in despair, but that there is great hope. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, and we thank you for your words today. We thank you for these words of wisdom. God, we need your grace because we don't love rebuke, we hate it. We need your grace to help us to love rebuke, to help us to contemplate death, to help us to have wisdom and using money. God, we need you. We ask your blessing on our lives that we would live and make much of you, that your name, your fame, your renown would, would resonate from our lives. And so God, as we respond in singing, I ask that you continue to work in us. I pray in Christ's name, amen.